You are listening to a message from Treeline Church, a life-giving church in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. If you are in the Pittsburgh region, we would love to have you join us in person for one of our services. Check out treeline.church for times and location. Thanks for listening and enjoy the message. The year is winding down and it's the end of a decade. Can you believe it? 2020 is coming up or 2020, whatever you want to call it, 2020, 2020, right? 2020 sounds pretty good, right? Like some good vision, right? And so we're really excited about that. And something that we want to let you know about is something that we do in January called 21 Days of Prayer. And so what we're going to do as a church in January, and you won't be able to miss this. Matter of fact, you're probably going to be sick of hearing about it, but we really want you to participate in it because we believe it all starts with prayer. Prayer is not an add-on. It's not something we kind of do just in case. It all begins with prayer. Treeline as a church was birthed in prayer. It all comes down to praying first. And so we want to do is set the very beginning, just like when we give, when we tithe, we give that first fruit back to God. We want to set aside the first part of the year and give it back to him and spend some time in focused prayer individually and as a church. And so we're going to start this in January, 21 days of prayer, and we'll also be doing some fasting. And so what is fasting? If you have questions about that, there's all kinds of really great information on our website that really breaks this down for you. But some people will be fasting the whole time, different types of ways they'll do that. Some people will fast on Wednesdays. Some people will fast like a lunch together. Um, Whatever it is, whatever that looks like, we just want to encourage you to participate in that. We're going to have some prayer declarations that we're going to believe and pray for next year as a church. So we just want to encourage you to be looking for that. And then when it all ends, we're going to get together uh, at the end of it. We're going to have a great time praying and worshiping together. We're so excited for that. So just want to let you know that that's coming up, 21 days of prayer. Hope you guys are excited Someone's like, someone got excited about prayer, right? We got to get excited about prayer. It's going to be good. Fasting, come on, somebody. It is not my favorite thing to do, but I'm telling you what, it is my honor to do it, and I love the results that we get from it because when you seek God and put him first and pay that kind of price, I promise you, God shows up in a real awesome way. So be looking forward to that. So it is the Christmas season. You can officially have your Christmas tree up in your house. Why do I know that's true? Because Thanksgiving is finally over. So the argument that you've been having pre-Christmas, you know, we do it before Thanksgiving. Do we do it after Thanksgiving? And I've heard all the arguments this year. Well, Thanksgiving was later this year. And so there's less time between Thanksgiving and Christmas. So I can't wait until after Thanksgiving to put the tree up. We've got to have it up now. Well, I'm sorry. That's not the case. You must wait till after. The, who had the tree up in here before Thanksgiving. Just be honest. Okay. Some of you are like, yeah, that's crazy. How many of you um, have put your tree up after Thanksgiving? How many of you still don't have a tree up and you're like, I don't even know. Yeah, come on. Yeah, that's right. And you're like, well, you're like, we got a nice tree here at church. We'll just use that one, right? That's what you can go for. It works for us, right? I t- joked with our kids this year that this year we were going to get one of those ones that you like print out and hang on the wall. You know what I mean? It's just like, or just like the piece of plastic you unfold and it's like, it's done. It's just on the wall, right? It's like flat Stanley. Remember your kids used to do that? Flat Christmas, you're Flat Stanley. What are you guys talking about, right? Some of you know what I'm talking about. Come on, Flat Stanley. He was fun, and he was my friend. So I had one mailed to me when I was in college. I took pictures of him all over the city, mailed him back. It was amazing. If you don't know, Google it. So it is Christmas season, it is officially here, and that's what our series that we're kicking off today is called Joy to the World. And it just seemed like such a a great thing to call a series because that's really what it's all about. It's the joy that came to us in the Christmas season. And so what we're going to be talking about, looking at, is where our joy comes from. This is something that I think is really important. A question that we have to ask ourselves is where does the joy in our life truly come from? And so I want to start today by telling a story, um, read a little bit of a story of a testimony of a guy 
named Deion Sanders. Now, some of you may remember Deion. He was a couple generations ago in the NFL, and I remember as a teenager watching him play uh, one of the best cornerbacks in NFL history. Matter of fact, that's not just my opinion. The NFL turned 100 years old this year, and they've been highlighting the top 100 players in NFL history, and they get a certain number of each position, and Deion made the list of cornerbacks, top 100 in the NFL in the history. This guy had it going on. Matter of fact, to let you know a little bit more about him, we got his picture we can put up in here. Dion played for several football teams, but matter of fact, that's not what's most impressive. He played for two teams that won Super Bowls. He played for the Dallas Cowboys. He played for the 49ers. I remember vividly the Cowboys era because uh, they beat the Steelers in the Super Bowl, Super Bowl 30 back in 96 when I was in high school. And so we avidly hated the Cowboys, right? As any good God-fearing Pittsburgh family, we did not like the Dallas Cowboys. I remember one time, this is a true story, there were some people, there was like, it looked like a shady deal was going on in this empty lot behind our house, and they were like, oh man, they must be down there selling drugs or something like that, or, you know, it was like calling the cops, and they come down, and, and we were like talking about the things that might be going on, and my, my brother, Brandon, who you guys know, he was really young at this time, really young, I mean, he was just a little kid in elementary school, and I remember them talking about the things that they might be doing with the cops, and he comes in, and he's like, yeah, and they're probably a Cowboys fan too, like just talking about like it couldn't get any lower, right, and that's how we felt about the cops, so I remember Dion from those days, like, come on, man, you know you're Steelers fan, you're talking trash on people you've never even met. It's like, but yeah, man, they ran all over us in that Super Bowl, and so I don't like Dion for that reason, but just he's at the top of his game, top of the world, won two Super Bowls, and here's what's even more amazing about him. He was a multi-team, he was a multi-sport athlete. He actually played baseball on several teams in addition to playing football. What's even more amazing than that, you're like, Brian, how can you get it more amazing? He actually played in a World Series for the Atlanta Braves. He is the only human being to have played in a Super Bowl and a World Series. Come on, this guy has got it going on. That is pretty amazing. I'd like to just even be the ball boy at the Super Bowl or World Series, right? And this guy has played in both. I mean, top of his game, top of his life. I mean, he had everything going on. And so what we're going to do is read a little bit of his story, a little bit of, of his story, what he went through at that time, and see where his mind was while all of this was going on, because it seems like it'd be a pretty great thing. And here's where he was after he won his first Super Bowl. Here's what he says. I remember winning the Super Bowl that year, and that night after the game, I was the first one out of the locker room, the first one to the press conference, and the first one to go home. And I remember my wife, Carolyn, saying to me, baby, you just won the Super Bowl. Don't you have a party downstairs or something to go to? And I just said, nah. And I rolled over and I went to sleep. That was the same week I bought myself a brand new $275,000 Lamborghini. Come on, someone. And he hadn't even driven it a mile before I'd realized, no, that's not it. That's not what I'm looking for. It's got to be something else. I'm so hungry. I tried everything, parties, women, buying expensive jewelry and gadgets, and nothing helped me. There was no peace. I mean, I was playing great. I got all this media attention and everything the world had to offer, but no peace, no joy, just emptiness inside. The Bible describes it in the first chapter of Ecclesiastes as chasing after the wind, and that's exactly what it was like. I tried to buy myself something to make myself happy, and I was even emptier than before because I could see that nothing could possibly satisfy the hunger that was deep down inside of me. I tried throwing myself into my career, into sports, trying to see how far I could go, and when I achieved every goal I could think of, I was right back where I started. Empty, empty, empty. 
And nothing I did could touch that deep loneliness inside of me. I was just running. I could not stop. Pretty amazing thing to hear from somebody who we would perceive to being on top of the world. Winning multiple Super Bowls, right? Playing in the World Series. Can you imagine the amount of money? I mean, come on, somebody. He's buying cars that are more expensive than houses. I mean, that is amazing, right? Would it be like, that would just be the great thing ever. How could you feel empty? How could you not have joy? I mean, driving a fancy sports car, wouldn't that, that'd make me kind of happy. I'm not going to lie. That'd bring me some joy in my life. But he was just at a place where he felt so empty. And we hear this all the time that pre-Christ, before people come to Jesus, because God designed each and every one of us for that longing, for that connection with him. And nothing else can come close to satisfying this. And obviously, this is a part of a story of him coming to Christ. And we'll read a little bit more of that here momentarily. But something that we've got to understand is that, yes, that happens before we come to Jesus. There's this longing that can't be filled. But if we're honest with ourselves, this isn't just something that happens pre-Christ. It's something that can happen post-Christian as well. This feeling, this sense, this longing that something's missing. This sense of that we can't have joy. And sometimes we can't put our finger on it. And the amazing thing is that if we're honest, Christmas kind of highlights this for us, doesn't it? There's this added pressure to be happy in the month of December, right? I mean, we all know the song. It's the most wonderful time of the year, right? Come on. Ding, dong, ding. Some of you already had it in your head. You were there, right? And so it, it just there's this pressure that you've got to be happy at Christmas. Everyone's gonna, it's going to be wonderful, right? We're going to get the family together. And some of you are like, oh, Brian, let's talk about the opposite of joy, getting the family together. Are you kidding me? But there's this pressure that we feel. Come on, somebody. We're going to get the fruitcake. We're going to get together with the fruitcakes. Come on, right? It's going to be an amazing time. There's this pressure to be happy and this longing for joy. And that this question that we have to ask, maybe a little bit like Dion, is where does our joy come from? What do we do when we find ourselves longing for something that we can't quite put our finger on, but where does it come from? I want to read a story to us today from the book of Luke. And this is an encounter that Jesus had with a guy. We don't know a lot about him other than they call him the rich young ruler. Well, this sounds like he's got a little bit of what Dion had going on, right? The rich young ruler. So the guy was wealthy, right? He was on the right side of his age, right? He was young, so he could enjoy that wealth. And not only that, he had influence because he was a ruler. So this guy was powerful. He was large and in charge, right? And so this is going to story. We're going to read his encounter of when he came to Jesus and encountered Jesus. Is this what he said in Luke 18. A certain ruler asked him, good teacher, what, I must, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. Pause. I love the foreshadowing. Do you love Jesus here? He is saying, oh, that's great that you notice that I am good, but why do you call me good? Because God is the only one that's good. So therefore, if I'm good, I must be God, right? Do you love how Jesus kind of sneaks that in there? He says, you know the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, honor your father and your mother. And here's what this young ruler who is rich replies. He says, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Now, holy cow. I mean, that is like quite a statement, right? That he has kept all of the commandments, that he has done it all. He's got all the things that God told him they were to do to be a good God follower, that he did it. He obeyed the rules. He did all those things. Yes, I'm good, but he's still asking this question. What do I have to do to have life? And then Jesus hears him, and this is what he responds. You still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. 
Jesus looked at him and said, how hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. It continues, it says, those who heard this asked, they said, who then can be saved? Jesus replied, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Peter said to them, we have left all we had to follow you. Jesus says, truly I tell you, no one who has left home, wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age, in the age to come, eternal life. So I don't know when you read this and you hear this story, this encounter that this guy has with Jesus. I don't know about you, but when I read these sort of things, I'm like, I've got questions, right? Like, what exactly does that mean? This guy, so Jesus is telling him, like, you got to follow the rules. Great, you follow the rules. Now you got to sell everything because you can't have money to follow me. So let's break this down and really jump in here and dive in and see what is going on in this exchange with this rich young ruler in Jesus. See, the thing that this guy asks him, he says, how do I get to heaven? How can I have eternal life? But the thing that we've got to catch here is what the guy is asking. And this word that they use for life in the Bible here in the Greek is actually the... the um, excuse me, the word Zoe, and it means God's imparted life. It means his spiritual life. It's life that cannot be diminished. And so he's not just asking, how do I get to heaven, right? He's basically asking the question, why don't I feel like I have life? He's basically asking this question, what is missing? Like, I've got the money, I've got the power, I've got the influence, I've followed all the rules, but what is missing? He's saying, I've kept the law, all of the rules, and see, sometimes it's just easy to think as a Christ follower, it's simply about following the rules. And Jesus lists out some of the actual Ten Commandments, right? And those are pretty good things, right? Don't kill anyone, right? Listen to your mom and dad. I mean, those are things that we all want to obey and do, but here's what we can't miss. The law and the Ten Commandments and everything in the Old Testament that people who were following after God, what they were following, that was set up. God did that just to simply show that we can't do it. It's an impossible task. It's to simply show that we are in desperate need of God's mercy. Matter of fact, it shows that we need Jesus. We need a Savior in our life. And so he does this, and then what does he do? He says, sell your stuff. If you want to follow after me, if you truly want to know what life is, go ahead, sell it all, give it to the poor, and then come and follow me. What is that all about? Does that mean that if we have money, if we have wealth, that we can't follow after God, we can't follow after Jesus, we can't really know what joy in life is if we have possessions? And see, I don't really think that's what it is. I really think if we were to examine here, I think Jesus was basically calling this guy out on something. He was saying, you said that you have followed all of the commandments, right? Your whole life since you were a boy, you say you have followed all the things that God has asked you to do. But I really think he's pointing out that he failed to follow the very first commandment. Matter of fact, we can take a look at it in the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 5. It says this, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. See, what he was saying was, it's not about the money, but he was saying, what has your heart? Here's what I know is true, that every single one of us will worship something. 
You may not believe it, but we're all going to worship something. God wired us to worship. We are going to be worshipers. Whether you worship God or the Bible, whether you worship Jesus or something else, we're all going to worship. Matter of fact, I remember when we moved here a couple of years, moved back here a couple of years ago, and a pastor friend of mine was driving me around, um, showing me some of their properties, that they, some of the buildings and churches and things that they were doing in the city, um, just showing me around. And I remember we were coming across the Fort Pitt Bridge at one time downtown, and as we were coming across the bridge, you know that the, the Heinz Field's right there. You can see a great view of it. And as we were coming across, he kind of chuckled and he was like on the tour. He was like, and here's where the city comes to worship, right? Because it's kind of true, right? I mean, we're all going to worship something, right? We're going to worship something and, and we're all wired that way. And you really understand the word worship comes from the words worth-ship. What do we assign worth to? See, our worship is saying what we assign ultimate value to in our life. So if we're all going to worship something, if we're all going to put something first in our life, what are we assigning that ultimate value to? What is the most important thing? And I think this is where he was in this story, that he was calling this guy out, that it wasn't about the money. It wasn't about the wealth. He was saying, have you put me first in your life? And are you willing to sell all this, get rid of all this that has your heart in order to follow after me? See, friends, if you don't get anything else today in this message, here's something that I, I really hope that I can communicate and help us understand today, and it's this, that whatever competes with God for the throne of my heart will rob me of the life that is truly life. Did you catch that? Whatever competes with God for the throne of my heart will rob me of the life that is truly life. See, I don't know if you know this or not, but here's what I know is true about Jesus. Jesus is the most generous and giving, loving person that you will ever meet. How do I know this? I mean, the Bible straight up tells us that no greater love has any for any man than the person who lays down their life for another. And Jesus gave his life. Why? So that we could be reconciled with the Father. Talk about that kind of crazy love, right? That God loved you and me so much that he sent son Jesus to pay the price for my mistakes for your mistakes, for your sins, for your failures, for your falling short. And that he gave his life and he showed us grace. What is grace? That he gave us what we didn't deserve. We don't deserve his forgiveness. And then he showed us mercy. What is mercy? Not giving us what we do deserve. Well, what does that mean? The Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death. What is a wage? Something that you earned. We deserve to be punished. We deserve to be separated from God. But Jesus loved you so much and he gave it all, laid it on the line. And not only that, he never stopped there. He never stopped loving you. Whether you accepted it or not, he has always been there, always will be, always loving you. Nothing can separate you from his love. He's the most generous person that you will ever meet. He doesn't hold your past against you. Matter of fact, the Bible tells us that as far as the east is from the west, that he doesn't hold it against us anymore, that he doesn't see us that way. He sees us as a new creation. He has wiped the slate clean. This is the kind of love that Jesus has. He's the most generous person that you'll ever experience. But friends, at the same time, Jesus is the most demanding person that you'll ever meet. See, Jesus came and gave it all, but truly it's an exchange. He asks for it all. See, as much as God is loving, as much as Jesus is generous, as much as he is giving it all, he is asking it all back from us. Why? So that we're living a life of surrender to him. And so it's not just simply about what Jesus can do for us. It's about laying down our life and worship for him. And so when we talk about Jesus as being, being an add-on, and I think this is a really danger that's happening in our, in our culture. Maybe it's just Western Christianity. I'm not sure. 
But there's this idea that when you come to Jesus, when you experience him, it's like Jesus add-on, right? It's almost like Jesus becomes like this supplement. Like when we come to Jesus, we don't really change anything about us. We just want to add Jesus to the equation to kind of improve certain areas of our life. But if we simply see Jesus as a supplement to our life, we will miss the fact that Jesus didn't come to simply improve certain areas of our lives. Jesus came to give us a completely new life. And when we understand and we see that, that Jesus is not an add-on, if we just live that way, we will be constantly living in conflict with ourselves. Jesus was always making these severe statements, saying he, he talked about it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of the needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. What does that mean, right? I mean, come on, sometimes you read this stuff in the Bible and you're like, Jesus, we're like, what? What? What is that? Where is that coming from? And really, biblical scholars break this down. There's two, two trains of thought on what this could really mean that Jesus is talking about. So in medieval times, when a city was fortified and they had a wall around the city, they would have gates. And these gates would be closed at night so they would keep the bad guys out, right? Keep the good people in, bad guys out. So they just close the gates at night. And if you missed curfew and you got, didn't get in before the gates were closed, there was actually a small little door in the wall, kind of like a doggy door. Think of it that way, but just a little bit bigger because you got to be bigger than a doggy to get in. And they would actually keep that open so that you could get in at night. And they would actually call this the eye of the needle. And so there's this idea that they were saying this. Jesus was saying, well, if a camel is loaded down with a lot of goods and a lot of things, it'd be really hard to get that camel through the eye of the needle through the wall. So that's one thought. But the prevailing thought that they actually believe that Jesus was saying is actually what is much more extreme and ridiculous. That Jesus is actually referring to a sewing needle. So he's actually saying that it would be more difficult, it would be easier for a camel to pass through a sewing needle, right? I mean, come on, let's talk about ridiculous and extreme statements. And they were saying, man, if that's the case and all the people around them heard this, they're saying, well, who, who can even be saved? And Jesus is like, you're right, it's impossible. It's only with God. And here's the thing. Jesus was always fault-throwing out statements like this. And the thing is, is he never backed off. He never <laughs> lowered the bar. It's not like he like say something like that and the disciples later come around. He's like, all right, guys, here's the real deal. I'm not, I'm not really asking for everything. I was just kind of saying that, you know, I was just trying to make a point. No, he never backs down. He never lowers the bar. He's like, yeah, it's pretty much impossible. I don't know what to tell you. It's only with God. And so Jesus makes these extreme statements because Jesus is the most loving, but he's almost always the most demanding person at the same time. And see, if you've ever felt like you have been missing something or if you've got to get to the point where you've got to surrender everything to God, if you've got to that point point wondering where our joy comes from, we've got to get to the point that we've got to surrender everything to him. If you hold on to anything, it will keep you from experiencing the life that God has for you. See, friends, it's an exchange. God asks, he gives it all, but then he asks for it all. And see, it becomes a position of our heart, because what is worship? Assigning worth to something, and it's simply our response and saying, because you did it all for me, because you laid it all down for me, my act of surrender is to lay it all down for you. It becomes a heart issue. I don't know if you've ever felt this way, or maybe Christmas season highlights it for you, that there's this nagging sense that something is missing. And so how do we know what that is? And we're going to take a look at a couple different areas, five different things that maybe this might be something that is robbing you of your joy. But something that I want to talk about is just this idea that if something is missing, how, how do we know what that is? And how do we know that this is one of the things? Well, I think it's sometimes the things that rob us from our joy are things that we cause us to worry all the time. 
that we're worried about it constantly. Maybe it's something that is stressful for you. You constantly have stress and maybe even anxiety over this. Maybe it's something that keeps you up at night where you wake up and that's the thing that you're constantly thinking about. So I want to highlight these five things and we got to ask ourselves this question. What is competing for the throne of my heart? What is competing for the throne of my heart? I got a few here, and this isn't an exclusive list, but there's a few things that I think most of us will identify with one or several of these things. The very first one is riches. Riches are something that can compete with the throne of our heart for God. Maybe it can be money or the lack of money or not having enough money, but here's what we know is true. In the book of 1 Timothy, there's this verse that gets misquoted actually all the time, and it says, the love of money is the root of all evil. A lot of times it gets misquoted and people just say money is the root of all evil, but that's not the true. That's not the case. Money is neutral. Money's not evil. It's not like you open up your wallet and there's like this hideous little laugh <laughs> when you open it. Money's not evil, right? It's ridiculous. Money is neutral. It's what we choose to do with it, right? That's why it says the love of money, greed, is the root of all evil. And so what we got to understand, it's not about having money. And that's what we got to catch here with the rich young ruler. This was obviously the issue of his heart and where his throne of his heart was his money. Why? Because it's not a big deal having money. The big deal is when the money has you. It's not about having stuff and possessions. It's when the possessions and the stuff have you, Right? And so we got to get to the self, ask ourselves this question, is it the riches that are competing for the throne of my heart? And this is the prayer that we've got to pray and say, and maybe this is something that we've got to do daily or remind ourselves this is an issue that competes for your heart, saying, Lord, I choose to trust you with my resources and my finances. I trust that you will provide, and I trust, and I will be generous. So maybe that's something for you where it's the riches that competes for the throne of your heart. Maybe you're here today and, well, that's not it because I don't have money and it doesn't have me, right? Because I don't have any of it, right? So it's not a big deal. Like money just doesn't have the throne of my heart. Money doesn't do it for me. Well, that's great. Maybe it's not, but we got a couple others that we're gonna look at. Matter of fact, these all start for, with R, make it a little easier for you to take notes. The first one was riches. The second one is results. Results of being goal-oriented, it's achievement-oriented, and none of these are bad in themselves, right? Money, there's nothing wrong with money, and there's nothing wrong with even being goal-oriented or being achievement-oriented. There's nothing wrong with that, but there's this idea that competes with the throne of our heart that we've got to get it done, and that if we don't reach this goal, then life is just off, right? If we don't achieve this, if we don't get to that thing, and this is something that I've struggled with through the years, this idea of results, and if I, if I don't get there, if I don't achieve this thing, if I don't achieve, if I don't get there where I want to in my head, in my heart, where I know I'm supposed to be, whatever that goal is, then life is just off and we can't have joy. We can't experience life to the fullest because we're constantly trying to get this result. I know this even in small ways with myself, and maybe you'll identify this, even those stupid little games that come on your phone or you can download, and they're the free games, you know, like the most ridiculous, nonsensical game. It doesn't even take a skill. You just have to tap the screen at the right time, right? And it's like you get the high score, and then I can't play it until I beat that high score again, and then I get mad, and I don't even want to play the game because I can't beat the high score anymore. It's right. It's ridiculous, right? But it's just always this idea of one-upping it. I remember there was a season in my life where I used to wear a Fitbit. Shout out. Anyone used to wear the Fitbit years ago? I actually got more fit looking for it because the thing fell off of my belt loop all of the time that I actually did taking the steps. But I remember seeing those on there and apparently your phone, if it's fancy, it has a step counter. But I've been delivered of this, but I used to be so incredibly, I had to beat it, right? Whatever the steps were the day before it was like I had to beat those steps the next. I'd be like going to bed, you look at the Fitbit, you're like, oh man, I'm 500 steps short. And Christy's like, where are you going? I'm going to walk the stairs. I got to get more steps in, right? Because you just have to beat it. You got to one up. You got to have the results 
And if we're not careful, those results can fight for the throne of our heart with God. We have to get to the point and say this prayer. This is something that I have to say and remind myself on the daily basis, sometimes multiple times a day, saying, Lord, it's okay if it doesn't work out. I just want to live a life that pleases you. Instead of putting that on the throne of my heart, recognizing that God is Lord, that he is first in my life. So we got the results. And the next one is relationships. Relationships. And this is where we elevate somebody or a relationship to a point in our life where we absolutely have to have their approval or the relationship has to look a certain way. And when we do this, we were saying that our sense of worth, our identity can come from this relationship. Because once again, right, nothing wrong with relationships. Nothing wrong with having relationships. It's simply when we exalt a relationship to the point where instead of pursuing God and putting him first, we simply say my sense of worth, my identity, whatever it is we attach to this relationship, to this person or these people, and we feel that if we don't get that and we don't have the approval and if we experience the rejection it's just too painful and so we simply got to get to the point where we say we're going to experience rejection and that's okay and we have to have this as our prayer lord it is in your hands we have to get to the point and say i can't control them i can't control how the relationship is going to go i can't make them like me i can't make this go well my identity can't come from them. And so we got to realize that if we are not careful, relationships and our life can compete for the throne of our hearts. So the first one was riches. Then we got results. Then we got relationships. And our next one is our rights. Our rights. This is where we are offended. Well, what does that mean? See, our rights basically say we're offended because we'll say, it's not fair that I got treated this way. It's not fair that that person did that to me. Or maybe we get offended with God. It's not fair that this situation happened to me because I was trying to follow after God. I was doing all the right things. Maybe even a little bit like the rich young ruler. I followed all the rules. I did all the things that God wanted me to do. I was going to church. I was praying. It's not fair that it happened this way. It's not fair that it turned out this way. I am wrong and I'm upset and I'm angry. And so we get so caught up in getting it fixed. And we get so caught up in saying that I've got to seek justice. And friends, you may have been wronged. It might not just be in your head or something you make. Someone might have wronged you in some way and your rights were transgressed and something happened to you that you didn't deserve. But if you are so busy seeking justice, you're going to miss out on the grace that comes from a relationship with God. Because I don't know what situation you have been through. I don't know what you have faced. But what I know is true is that God's grace is sufficient for every single situation that we go through. Friends, I've been through some incredibly painful things in life. I've had people who were close to me betray me and hurt me. I've had people in my life where painful situations or things that I could have never dreamed of that I would have to go through and face on a random Tuesday, punch me in the face and knock me out and think I was down for the count and that life was over because it was just going to be too hard to live. But we've got to get to the point where we understand that God's grace is sufficient for us in every need that we can begin to pray, God, be glorified in this situation. This is not the way that I would want it to be. This is not my desire. I don't like it this way. But God, I'm just praying that even though I don't understand, even though I think it should be different, that God, I'm going to pray that you are glorified in this situation anyway. And if we're not careful when we're seeking that justice and seeking our rights, it can have the throne of our hearts. The final one is resolution. So we started with riches, results, relationships, rights, and the last one is resolution. Told you they were all with R. 
A resolution says that until I have this, until this prayer is answered, and you can fill in the blank with anything, and you think things like until Mr. or Mrs. Wright shows up, right? Until this prayer is answered, until I achieve this level in my career, until I live in this certain place, until whatever this prayer that I have before God is answered, I can't be at rest and so we constantly just get to this place of whatever it is, whatever this resolution that I, if it feels like you're almost like hanging, right? Like the saying, you're waiting for the other shoe to drop. And this is the place that we get to in our life when we get caught up in resolution. We feel like we can't get move on, that we're stuck, that we can't do anything else. We can't pursue anything else. And maybe sometimes this is the thing that keeps you up. Maybe this thing that you, you stress over because we're waiting for that prayer to be answered. We're waiting for that resolution. And this is the prayer that we've got to get to. We've got to say, God, I choose to trust you. Oh, man. Even if things don't work out the way that I want. God, even if things don't work, even if this resolution never happens, even if I never see the answer on this side of eternity. God, I'm choosing to trust. And I'm choosing to follow you. I'm choosing to surrender, even if the answer doesn't show up. See, I'm reminded of a story, and maybe you've heard this before. There's a guy in the Old Testament, his name was Abraham. And Abraham was used by God to do some pretty amazing things for the people of God. And at one point, Abraham uh, marries a woman named Sarah, and God promises them that they're going to have a baby together. And so God gives them this promise that they're going to have a child, but then the time starts ticking, the clock starts coming. 25 years later, they finally have a son. And here's how we know God has a sense of humor, because God told him to name this son Isaac, which means laughter. And why was this funny to God? Why does he have a sense of humor? Because at this point, Abraham was 100 and Sarah was 90 years old. And so God's like, that's pretty funny, right? Come on, it's pretty funny. Let's call him that, right? God has a sense of humor. And it tells him, come on, throw your head back and laugh. It's pretty funny. And so after all of this happens, they have the son, they have Isaac, they have the promise that God had given him and fulfilled to him. What happened? Some of you know the story. If you don't know the story, God says, okay, now that I've given you your son, I'm asking for him back. I'm going to ask you to do something to us when we read. Almost sounds unbelievable, sounds cruel, sounds like how can that even be a loving God? But God says, hey, I'm going to ask you for him back. I'm going to ask you to sacrifice him to me. And so Abraham takes his son Isaac out, and that's what he's going to do. He takes him up, and Isaac's like, what's going on, Dad? He's like, hey, we're going to go sacrifice. He doesn't kind of throw that in there that you're going to be the sacrifice, right? But God does something. He provides a ram for them to sacrifice. And here's the thing that you've got to understand. God never wanted Isaac to be sacrificed. God wanted to know that he had Abraham's heart and that he was first in his life, that he wasn't just simply seeking his hand and the promise of what he could do for him. He wanted to know what? That he still had the seat in the throne of his heart. He wanted to know that he was first Friends, as we conclude today, here's the thing that I really want us to remember, and maybe this is what you need to write down, that whatever is competing for the throne of your heart is stealing your joy. Maybe as we talk about these five things, one or two or three, I don't know, jump out to you. And I know this can be a hard and hard message, but as, as your pastor, I want, I want to be helpful to you. And I know that sometimes we have to have honest conversations with ourselves. And if I'm really honest with you, as I was reading through this and preparing for this message this week, man, it was just like getting smacked one time after another. Because I have to check my own heart with these things. As a Christ follower, as a pastor, it's not like I wear a cape and I don't have to deal with these things. I I too have to remind myself to put God first in my life. And here's something that I really want us to understand today. 
is sometimes it's not some malicious thing where we're just like, hey, I'm going to make sure I pursue this and this is going to be a God, whether it's the riches or relationship or resolution, whatever it is, your rights. It's not like you're trying to do that maybe intentionally, but here's what I know. If you do not intentionally put God on the throne of your heart, something else will creep up every single time. So as we conclude today, I kind of wanted to read to you the conclusion of Dion's story, his testimony that he shared. He's talking about a friend of his, Eugene, that he was meeting with, who was a lawyer friend of his. And he says this, after we ate dinner, we sat there in the same seats for hours. And he was telling me about how the Lord was working in his life. At one point he asked me, Dion, are you saved? And I said, no, man, I can't say that I am. But my attorney has been asking me the same question. Of course, Eugene knew that I wasn't saved, but I had been reading up on it. And after talking with Mark, I went home and I went to bed and this stuff was really on my mind. I was laying there in bed about four o'clock in the morning when I was awakened by these awesome lights in my room. I say it was like a 747 had landed by my bed and there was this incredible rush of wind that felt like a helicopter had come in with it. I remember opening my eyes just as the slightest bit and saying, God, if that's you, just take me. Take me, Lord. And I was trembling all over. Before long, it was silent and the lights disappeared. And later that night, I got up, opened my Bible to a passage that said, if you confess with your mouth that the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, one believes unto righteousness and with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. The words hit me like a ton of bricks. I knew they were meant for me, and at that precise moment, I was delivered. I put my trust in Jesus. I asked him into my life, and as soon as I realized what I had done, I was so excited, I had to tell somebody. So I got on the phone, and I called my attorney, and I said, Eugene, I did it. I got saved. And he goes on to tell a little bit more of his story and his experience of coming to Christ and what that's done in his life. I see, friends, as we begin this journey, this Christmas season, and talking about where our joy comes from, we've got to understand that our joy simply comes from putting God first in our lives. Matter of fact, I don't know if you caught it, but the verse that we read in Luke 18 and verse 29, it finished with this. Jesus said to them, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God. So he's saying, no matter what price you have paid, no matter what you have surrendered to me, he says, no one who has surrendered this to me will fail to receive many times as much in this age in the age to come to eternal life. See, friends, Jesus came and he said that I have come so that you can experience life to the full that it's not just simply about fire insurance. God didn't just send Jesus so we get a get out of hell card so we can go to heaven, right? No, it's not just about that, but that God wants us to experience this life, that life is a gift, that it's precious, that it's short. And friend, don't let those things that you try to place in the throne of your heart rob you from your joy because no matter what you sacrifice, no matter what you lay down to him, no matter what you put down, I promise you that none of it, it will all pale in comparison to the life that God has for you. Would you bow your heads with me as we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you. God, we thank you that you love us and that you care about us. God, we thank you that you sent Jesus and that Jesus is the most generous person that we will ever encounter, ever experience. But God, that he is also the most demanding. Jesus, I pray that you would give us the courage, that you would 
Give us the ability, give us the faith, God, to trust you, to surrender completely to you. God, I know that may be difficult, that may be hard. As a matter of fact, Jesus, you said following after you was impossible. It is only because God makes it possible. So God, I just pray today that we will examine our hearts and the things that we have placed, maybe one of these five things, Lord. Maybe it's the riches, Lord. Maybe it's the results, the relationships, the rights, the resolution, whatever it is, or maybe something else. God, that we would begin to put you first, that we would truly examine our hearts and ask ourselves these questions, begin to pray these prayers daily, Lord. God, you be glorified. Lord, I trust you. God, I'm gonna follow you. I'm gonna surrender you. God, my identity is in you. Today, as you're here and your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, I wanna ask you that if maybe like Dion, maybe you are in a place where you can't say for sure that you are saved, that you ever accepted Christ or that he's ever come into your life, that he's made you new, that you've surrendered your life to him. Friends, the first step is to simply surrender and say, I am in need of a savior. doesn't matter what you've done, doesn't matter how far you've run, doesn't matter how bad you've been, doesn't matter how good you've been. There's nothing you can do to earn the salvation that God has sent to us through his son, Jesus. We read it right there in Dion's own story. If you just simply believe in your heart, confess it with your mouth that you believe Jesus is who he says he is and he has done what he has said he has done in friends, he is and he has. You simply just have to believe it and confess it. If that's you today, well, no one's looking around. Or maybe you're listening online today or listening in your car, wherever you're at. If that's you today, I'm just gonna ask you right where you're at to lift your hand and say, Brian, include me in that prayer. Awesome. Anyone else? All right, we're gonna pray together. Confess with our mouths out loud so that no one has to pray alone. Repeat after me. Dear Jesus, I believe in you. Thank you for giving your life for me come into my heart. Make me new. Fill me with your spirit. Help me to follow you all of my life. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, can we cheer for those who made a decision to come to Christ today? Thanks for listening. If you would like to connect with us or learn more about our church, please visit us online at treeline.church or on social media. Our mission is to see family trees changed by a lifelong relationship with Jesus. We hope you can listen or join us next week.